Brothers and sisters, I'd like to speak with you today about uh, preparation and power for effective witness. Preparation and power for effective witness. If I were to ask you what you need, what must you possess to be an effective witness for the Lord Jesus Christ, what might you say? Perhaps uh, you would say you need to study doctrine. You need to go deeper in theology. Maybe you'd say that we need to study how Jesus evangelized so we can learn how to do evangelism according to Jesus. Or maybe you might say that we need to take an evangelism course. We need to do evangelism training to be fully and sufficiently equipped to witness. And perhaps you might say, we need to know the gospel. We need to know about the death and the burial and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. That knowledge alone will make us capable of witnessing effectively for the Lord Jesus Christ. But I want to submit to you all today that those Although those things are all good and helpful for our preparation, in and of themselves, they are incomplete. Doctrine is necessary. Imitating Christ is essential. Training edifies. Knowing the gospel is certainly essential. But we also need power. And this passage helps us to see what is vitally important in evangelism, uh, in missions. And when we approach the book of Acts, uh, brothers and sisters, we we have to do so with prayerful discernment. Uh, We have to do so with prayerful discernment to be able to discern between that which is descriptive versus prescriptive. We must understand that Acts reveals things that are normative, what we can interpret as prescriptive. We may see those things supported in the epistles of the New Testament. But also it gives us what is descriptive, that is to say what is isolated to the apostolic era and to the early church. So we must do so with prayerful discernment. And on the one hand, brothers and sisters, we must affirm that the Holy Spirit's activity in the ministry of Jesus Christ and in the apostles is not precisely the same as the Holy Spirit's ministry in the church today, we must also affirm what 2 Timothy 3.16 says, and that all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, and that includes the book of Acts. And so, as Christians, the Holy Spirit is present in us. He is active in and through us to enable us to be effective witnesses for the Lord Jesus Christ. And so with that, brothers and sisters, thinking about the book of Acts for a moment, What we see in the book of Acts, amongst other things, is God is fulfilling his promise to redeem the nations. 
He is beginning the process of reconciling the nations to himself through the person of Christ. He is redeeming people from various languages and tribes and people groups. We are seeing the unprecedented uh, advance of the gospel, the spread of the good news. We see the mighty work of the Holy Spirit. We see largely, though not exclusively, the Spirit's power in the apostolic witness, especially in the witness of Peter and Paul, we see the coming to pass of what Christ promised in Matthew 16 to build and to bless his church. And that doesn't come without persecution. There is satanic opposition to the building up of Christ's church. But when you read chapter 1, brothers and sisters, we learn very quickly that something big is about to occur. This is the build-up to Pentecost. This is the build-up to the advent of the Holy Spirit. This is the build-up to the birth of the church that begins at Jerusalem. This is the build-up to God's fulfillment of Jewish and Gentile redemption in the new covenant era. It is the build-up to what we see transpire in Acts chapter 2. So when we look at verses 1 to 3 in chapter 1, you have Jesus' life and ministry, his resurrection, and his ascension in just three verses. In verse 1, you have the summation of Jesus' life and ministry. You have verse 2, which speaks about his ascension after his final marching orders that he gives to the apostles. Then you have verse 3, his resurrection appearance to his apostles. And so the, and the focus is all on Jesus' preparation of his disciples to be worldwide witnesses. It's not only informative for us, brothers and sisters, but by implication, it is instructive to us who are the modern-day witnesses of the Lord Jesus Christ. So as we focus on the theme of being a witness for the Lord Jesus Christ, I want us first to see the preparation for effective witness the preparation for effective witness. And again, for the brothers and sisters, this is part of the buildup to this unprecedented event that is promised and comes to pass in Acts chapter 2. Look at verse 1 again. The first account I composed, Theophilus, concerning all that Jesus began to do and teach. So here we go, beginning the preparation before the promise. We begin to see the promise unfold or being uh, predicted in, in uh, verse 4 and following, and then it comes to pass in chapter 2. But here we have first Luke, the historian, addressing a man named Theophilus. Theophilus means friend of God. And when we look at the book of Luke, which is kind of part one to this two-part series, Theophilus is addressed as most excellent Theophilus. We don't know if that means he is a person of high rank. Perhaps it does mean that, or if it's some type of honor or position that he holds. 
And, you, and Luke writes, this is the first, the first account which refers to the Gospel of Luke. So if you read the Gospel of Luke, you see some parallels, particularly in chapter 24, which is a parallel to chapter 1 of the book of Acts. And it's about all that Jesus began to do and teach. And there you have a summary of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's about Christ's works, and it's about Christ's words. And how did he prepare them? Where well, he prepared them by his works, right? He performed miracles, and he performed wonders and signs. Christ did awesome things, right? He, he exerted his authority over the kingdom of darkness by expelling demons. Demons were powerless, and in fact, they were fearful in the, in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. He demonstrated his kingdom power to heal. In fact, there was no sickness, there was no disease, there was no disability that was beyond Jesus' power to banish and to expel. He gave life to the dead. We see a couple of occasions in the Gospel of Luke along when he raised Jairus' daughter and he raised the dead, a dead body that was leading out on a funeral processional. He was transfigured before them. And the height of his works, right, was his willful and voluntary suffering at the cross to pay the sins of the world. His miracles were not trivial, yet they gave irrefutable evidence, brothers and sisters, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that the Father was at work in him performing miracles. In fact, when you turn to chapter 2, and Peter preaches his first sermon, this is, he references the miracles of Christ in, in verse 22. He says, men of Israel, listen to these words. The, Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst just as you yourselves knew. That is to say, you, it is unmistakable, it is irrefutable, the miracles that Christ performed in your midst, and it was God at work in him. You fast forward to chapter 10 and verse 38. This is what Peter says in preaching to Cornelius and to Gentiles this time. He says, you know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. He took that same message that regarding the healings and the miracles of the Lord Jesus Christ, not just with the people of Israel, what Peter preached, but also taking that to Gentiles. But also what he taught, what did Jesus taught? Countless teachings that he taught. He taught about the kingdom of God, the new covenant. He preached himself as Lord and God and Messiah and the Son of Man. He gave predictions of his suffering. He taught on discipleship. He said, in order to follow him, you have to deny yourself, take up your cross, which they would have understood to mean suffering even to the point of death for Jesus and follow me. He taught about Jerusalem's fall. He taught about the tribulation. He, he taught about his return. He taught about the greatness of servanthood. 
the apex of which was himself as the servant of Yahweh again in his crucifixion. And so the, he was preparing them, brothers and sisters. He, he was preparing them to, to go out and to replicate those teachings, and that's exactly what they did. They went out and proclaimed the kingdom of God. They didn't come up with a new message. It was the emulation of the message that they had already received. That is what modern-day evangelism is. We don't have a new message to give. We preach about repentance. Why? Because Jesus said repent. We preach about faith in the Lord Jesus Christ because Christ said, believe in me. We teach about following Jesus because that's exactly what Jesus said. In fact, he went so far as to say, if you don't hate your father and mother, your sister, your brother, even in your own life, you can't be my follower. That's what we tell people. We don't water it down. We don't edit it. We don't add to it. We don't give it an addendum. We tell them exactly what Jesus said. Jesus was teaching the kingdom of God, and that's exactly what the disciples and you and I are to teach. If you were to look back at Luke chapter 9, brothers and sisters, he had prepared them exactly on the message to preach, and he sends them out in Luke chapter 9. And you know what he does in Luke chapter 10? He sends out 70 more. Same message. So, brothers and sisters, when we read about Jesus' life and ministry, it's not stories to marvel at solely. It's content for proclamation. It's preparation for evangelism. This is not stories to gloss over. It's fortification for witness. We've got Bible study on a weekly basis. We've got Sunday school message on a weekly basis. We've got Sunday school on a weekly basis. Why? Being edified and equipped for evangelism ministry. We've got the gospel being proclaimed week in and week out. The gospel is not just for lost people. The gospel is for believers. If you don't believe that, look at 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul opens up those verses saying, I preach to you the gospel. He's not talking to lost people. He's talking to believers. The gospel has implications for your life. It's not just what you believe and are saved by. It's what you are sanctified by and proclaim. Back to the verse. He taught and he worked. And, brothers and sisters, he charged them. He commissioned them. Look at verse 2. Until the day when he was taken or received up to heaven, after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. So now it shifts ahead, brothers and sisters, Luke does, from Christ's life and ministry to Christ's ascension. His ascension. He had performed miraculous works. He spoke profound words until he was received up into heaven. You can look at Luke chapter 24, verse 51 for a parallel account of that. In fact, I'll read it for you, beginning at verse 50. And he led them out as far as Bethany in Judea, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And after he was carried up into heaven, brothers and sisters, we look at passages, numerous passages in the, in the New Testament, and even Psalm 1, 
10, right? He was carried up into heaven. Why? To sit down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty of high, to sit down at the place of honor, the place of authority, the place of privilege next to God himself. And it was necessary. Why did Christ say that it had to do that? He, he told them it was necessary that I ascend. Listen to John 16, 7. But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Right? Even his ascension pointed to, their, to the future, pointed to the advent of the Holy Spirit. And then also that too, brothers and sisters, became content for, for evangelism. If you just go to chapter 3, and in chapter 3, Peter preaches his second message, and this is what he says to the people. Christ, whom heaven must receive, in verse 21, until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time. Wow, his ascension became the content for his proclamation to the people. I tell people, I'm, I, when, I, when I tell them evangelism, I tell them, this, isn't, these aren't, these, this, is not night. this is not stories, this is not legend, this is not myth, this is about the person and work of Jesus Christ who has gone back to heaven and one day is coming back. It says, after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. There's part of their preparation again, and part of our preparation, right? right? He, he ascended, but before he ascended, he gave his apostles marching orders. Marching orders. And the phrase, by the Holy Spirit, that's not a notion. It, 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 just, it confirms that the Holy Spirit was accompanying the work and the words of Jesus Christ. Points to his deity. It points to the fact that he is the Christ of God. You don't have to turn there, but just listen to Luke 3.22. And the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came out of heaven. You know it. You are my beloved son, and you I am well pleased. Matthew 12.18. Jesus is quoting 42 verse 1, and this is what Jesus said about himself. Behold, my, meaning God's servant, and who is a servant? God's son, whom I have chosen, my beloved, in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles, right? Speaking of the Holy Spirit working in him to proclaim justice to the nations. In Nazareth, when Jesus was, went back to his hometown and he went to the synagogue, and he didn't get a warm reception, people who he knew when he was a child, after they heard him preach, tried to throw him off a cliff. And this is what he said leading up to that. In Luke 4, verse 18, quoting Isaiah 61.1, he said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed. All right, he spoke by way of the Holy Spirit. 
And then you move ahead in Acts chapter 10, verse 38. Peter says, you know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit. It's like Luke wants us to know of the divine anointing of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that became content for the preaching. You go back to, go back to Acts chapter 1. And he says he had given orders to the apostles whom he chose. He gave them marching orders. Go back to Matthew 28. Look at these marching orders that he gave. Matthew 28. We're familiar with these marching orders. Matthew 28, beginning in verse 18, and Jesus came up, this is at Galilee, and spoke to them, the disciples, saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, right? He declares his universal sovereign authority over the entire created order. He has jurisdiction over everything, heaven above and earth below. He's got jurisdiction over the nations. And he says, on the basis of that authority, speaking to the disciples, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, right? He gives them the marching order, the divine assignment, which is to make disciples, make followers of me. And the way you do that is by the threefold purpose of going, baptizing, and teaching. Those are your marching orders. One command, make disciples, do it by going, evangelizing, baptizing those believers, and teaching them to grow to maturity so that they might obey me and be sent back out. Go back to Matthew 24. Matthew 24, Jesus is speaking about his return. And in Matthew 24, verse 14, Jesus says this, This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. He hasn't even given the Great Commission, but there's already expectation that the gospel is going to go forth. Go back to Gospel of Luke. Luke 24, now Jesus gives them marching orders in a different place, under different circumstances, still post-resurrection. Luke 24 He says in verse 46, And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day. Yet it is prophesied in the Old Testament concerning my suffering and my resurrection. But there's something else that was also prophesied. Look at verse 47. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. That is to say, Repentance being proclaimed throughout the world is also a fulfillment of prophecy. It's no surprise that the Great Commission is given. It's a fulfillment of the Old Testament that you and I have the privilege to participate in. Go to John. Go to John chapter 20. 
Jesus is in the company of his disciples. John chapter 20, he appears to them. Verse 19, so when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be to you. He appeared to them while they were in hiding. And when he said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. He gives them the visible evidence that he is the risen Christ. Verse 21, Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. It's a preview to what's going to take place in Acts chapter 2. We've just looked at four different occasions, three of which are commission-oriented and one which is in anticipation of the commission. Those are their marching orders. Those are our marching orders. So you go back now. Go back now to the book of Acts. And the scripture says that they were chosen, chosen as his apostles. That is, apostles means messengers, sent messengers, messengers sent on divine mission. That's what they were doing. They were to be sent out bearing the good news of the kingdom. They had been marked out for this mission. You can go back on your own. You can look at Luke chapter 6 and beginning at verse 13 and following and other places where it talks about Jesus specifically identifying those 12 who were to be his messengers. This is part of Jesus' preparation. Finally, with the preparation, we'll go back and look at Acts, look at Acts chapter 1, look at verse 3. To these whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. So now we go from his life and ministry in verse 1, his ascension in verse 2, to his resurrection in verse 3. What did Jesus do to prepare them? He presented himself to them. He appeared to them, and he spoke to them about the kingdom of God. He gave them convincing proof, certainties, evidences of his appearing. Now, you can track in the New Testament all the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus Christ. You can look at the Gospels. You can look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and you can read about some of those things when Jesus appeared to Cephas, uh, meaning Peter, when Jesus appeared to 10 of his disciples, and then he appeared to 11 of his disciples when Thomas was there, and then he appears to seven disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, and then he appears to the 11 again at the mountain in Galilee, and then it says he appeared to over 500 people at once. with his disciples in Jerusalem, which is possibly the final one that we read about in Luke 24 in Acts chapter 1. And so you can read about it even in further in Acts chapter 1 verse 9. But this, brothers and sisters, is among the powerful preparation for their witness. Because they're going to go out 
after Christ has ascended back to heaven, and they're going to have to bear witness to the fact that this Christ, whom they crucified, has risen. And they're going to have to be willing to give their lives for that truth. So it's preparation for gospel proclamation. It's our preparation for proclamation, right? He, Jesus commissioned us, having not chosen as apostles, brothers and sisters, but we've been chosen for salvation. That's Ephesians chapter 1, right? You've been chosen before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. You've also been chosen for evangelism. We didn't see Christ at his resurrection, but the Holy Spirit confirms the truth of his resurrection in our hearts, where I speak it with conviction as though I was there. Jesus said, right? Remember when Jesus chapter, in John chapter 20, verse 29, he appears to his disciples, and they were doubting at first, right? At least Thomas was. We know doubting took him a while to come around. And then they say, oh, now we believe and this is what Jesus said. This is what Jesus said in John chapter 20. I love this verse, verse 29. Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. That's you and me. I go out declaring the resurrection of my Savior, which sounds like foolishness to the world, but I know it to be truth as though I was there. And for doing that, you're blessed. You're blessed. He gives us the message to proclaim. We proclaim the person of Christ. We proclaim the cross of Christ. We proclaim the resurrection of Christ. We proclaim repentance for the forgiveness of sin. We proclaim faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. All of this, brothers and sisters, his words and his works are our preparation for witness. So we see that, brothers and sisters, in verses 1 through 3. And I want you now to see the promise of the Spirit for effective witness. The promise of the Spirit for effective witness. Look at verse 4. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard from me, so now Luke takes us beyond what is considered an opening prologue in verses 1 through 3, at minimum, to present time. Present time, Jesus being there with the disciples, right? And this is maybe the, 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 the end, perhaps, of those 40 days that Jesus is with them, the 40 days between Jesus' resurrection and his ascension. And it says they were being assembled together. Some people interpret, some commentators interpret that really as, or maybe properly interpreted as them eating together. But regardless, he charged them. He, con he commanded them. And he commanded them, don't leave Jerusalem. Don't depart from the city. It's an, it's an emphatic command. Okay? They were not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait. Interestingly, Jerusalem is the hot spot for opposition. And Jesus says, don't go anywhere. 
It's where Jesus was tried. It's where Jesus marches through to the cross. It's eventually where Stephen is going to get stoned to death. Jesus says, stay right here. That wouldn't make a whole lot of sense to a lot of Christians today. First sign of trouble, we're 86 and out of there. No, stay right here because this is where the church is going to be born. So they were to wait. And what were they to wait for? They were to wait for the promise of God, the Father, which Jesus had previously told them. In Luke 24, verse 49, it says this, Behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city. Look at verse 5. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now, right? The promise is what the Father promised. The promise Jesus refers to is the promise of the Holy Spirit. And he says, John the Baptist, who was the prophesied forerunner of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who came preparing the nation of Israel for the coming Messiah, right? He's the one who said, I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said, right? John comes in the fulfillment of Isaiah to prepare the people's hearts to receive their Messiah. And he, and he baptized people. He baptized people symbolizing that those people had repented for the forgiveness of their sins in anticipation of the Messiah. And he says, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Jesus had told them about the Holy Spirit. We get the, one of the richest uh, understandings of the Holy Spirit, rich pneumatology from Jesus alone. Just listen to John chapter 14, beginning at verse 16. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. Next chapter, chapter 15, verse 26. When the helper comes, who I will send to you from the Father, that is the spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. Chapter 16, verse 7. I, but I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Same chapter. Chapter 16, verse 13. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative. But whatever he speaks, he will speak and will disclose to you what is to come. And so it was to happen not many days from there, because 40 days had already passed, right? That the Spirit was to come on the day of Pentecost. Pentecost means 50, 50 days after Passover. So you are to wait here. Don't go fishing. Don't go back to family because he's coming. He's coming. And those who... Praise the Lord. Those who have placed their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, we're not waiting for the coming of the Holy Spirit. He abides in us. He abides in us. You know, when you read it, it to me, it, it is just 
wonderful thing to, to witness when you read the book of Acts. You read the book of Acts about these apostles. Formerly, when you go back to the Gospels, often who spoke you know, ignorant things, especially Apostle Peter at times impetuously, they all flee in the garden, leaving Jesus as prophesied to himself. They go, to, they go in hiding. Jesus appears to them. They're frightening. They're frightened. Even as we'll see in this moment, they ask a question about the kingdom that is a sidetrack from the from gospel ministry. And then you read the book of Acts and the power of the Holy Spirit got a hold of them. And the people that accused them of turning the world upside down. Yeah, the Holy Spirit came. He came. And you know what he did? He filled them. He enabled them. He empowered them to do some things for the glory of Christ. Turn to Acts chapter 2. Look at what the Holy, what happened with the Holy, the coming of the Holy Spirit. Chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting, and they appeared to them tongues as a fire, excuse me, tongues as a fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. And so people, they began to quibble and speculate, what's the cause of this? Go to verse 17, or actually verse 14. But Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, and he gives the first gospel message following the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Wonderful. He wasn't ready to do that before the coming of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit also gave them courage. Turn to chapter 4. Yeah, here you have Peter and John. They get arrested. They go before the Sanhedrin, the, the same religious court that tried Jesus Christ and condemned him to die, the same religious body that's going to condemn and call for Stephen to die. And look when the Holy Spirit got a hold of them. They were resting in his power. Verse 7, when they placed them, that is Peter and John, in the center, they began to inquire, by what power or in what name have you done this? And then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, and he begins to preach, and you skip down to verse 11, he is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved, including you. That's that's courage. That's boldness by the Spirit of God. Gave them conviction. Turn to chapter 5. 
They defy the threats of the religious leaders, and they get arrested again. Verse 27, when they had brought them, they stood them before the council. The high priest questioned them, saying, we gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name, and yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. You think Peter had the courage to do that apart from the Spirit? That's what happens when the power of the Spirit rests upon a person and that person yields to the person, to the a person of the Spirit. No, we're, we're not apostles, brothers and sisters, but the Holy Spirit dwells in us and we shouldn't believe that the Spirit's ability and willingness to empower believers is reserved for the apostles then if the Great Commission still applies to us today. He empowers us, brothers and sisters. He empowers us courageously. In the face of public shame, the possibility of hostility and danger, he empowers us. That's why Peter said, pray for me in Ephesians chapter 6. Pray that I might have boldness. He also gives us the conviction, conviction of the truth and the veracity and the authority of these, of these gospel truths that we proclaim. Holy Spirit helps us to communicate the gospel clearly, lucidly, with simplicity. He, he, Holy Spirit helps us to communicate the truths compassionately, with tenderness and love and mercy to lost people. Why? That's a fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5. He helps us to communicate the gospel correctly and accurately to bring to our remembrance the gospel truth that we believed in and were saved by. And you know what the Holy Spirit also helps us? He helps us to communicate the gospel unpredictably. Unpredictably. Right? You go back to Luke chapter 12 where Jesus promised believers, he said, don't even practice or rehearse what you're to say because I'll bring it back to your remembrance what you're to say. And so, brothers and sisters, we, the Holy Spirit helps us to communicate the gospel with courage, with conviction, with compassion, with clarity, even unpredictably. And, and as God wills, the person who receives and hears the gospel the Holy Spirit, if he wills, will convict them of sin, righteousness, and judgment. That's John 16, 8. Go back to verse 7 of the book of Acts now, chapter 1. Or actually, verse 6. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom of Israel? What made them ask that question? Well, perhaps God, Jesus' teaching on the kingdom made them want to ask that question. Perhaps the teaching about the coming of the Holy Spirit made them ask that question. Perhaps right, when Jesus is talking about the advent of the Holy Spirit, maybe they went back to Ezekiel 36 in their minds. Maybe they thought about Jeremiah Chapter 31, 
verse 27, where it says, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and with the seed of beast, as I have watched over them to pluck up, to break down, to overthrow, to destroy, and to bring disaster. So I will watch over them to build and to plant, declares the Lord. Perhaps that's what their question was, came about. So they want to know about the restoration of the kingdom. They want to know about Israel's return to prominence, peace and prosperity. They want to know, is this going to be the time where Israel is going to be restored as a political force, as a military force, and we're going to eradicate and remove the Roman occupancy? Is this the time where you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel and Messiah will rule? I submit to you, brothers and sisters, I think they got their eyes off the mark. Jesus is talking about the advent of the Holy Spirit for great commission purposes, and they're stuck on the kingdom. They're looking ahead to the kingdom. See, we can be so consumed with kingdom realities in the future to the neglect of kingdom priorities today. And he says in verse 7, it is not for you to know times or epochs or seasons which the Father has fixed by his own authority. It's not for you to know. Not for you to know, right? This is not the first time Jesus said this in Mark chapter 13. Jesus is speaking about eschatology and end times. And he says, at the end of... uh, Mark 13, and the scripture escapes me, but I'll just tell you, he tells us, it is, no one knows when these events are going to transpire, he tells them. No one knows. And he tells them again, it's not for you to know the times and the seasons with the, which God has reserved to transpire. And and you should notice something else what Jesus is making here. Jesus doesn't renounce, nor does he nullify the prophecies concerning Israel and the kingdom. God will restore the nation to a nation of prominence. They will have full acquisition of the land. They will have kingdom sovereignty where Christ will reign as king. But to the win, to when God's timetable is, God's divine schedule has been reserved, by his own authority, and that's not for you to know. There are mission priorities to worry about. So what took precedent at the moment? Look at verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part in the earth, right? 
but in contrast to the restoration of the kingdom, you will receive power. Not many days from now. In fact, Luke 24, verse 49, Jesus said this, they'll be clothed with power from on high. Heaven's power. Go to chapter 2 again, the book of Acts, verse 4. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak. And we looked at Peter's message earlier. Go to chapter 4, verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, spoke to the rulers. Go to chapter 6, verse 8. Now you have Stephen. Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. Go to chapter 13. It's a prominent theme in the book of Acts. But Saul, who was also known as Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, fixed his gaze on him, meaning an opponent, and said, you are full of all deceit and fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, you will not cease to make crooked the straight ways of the Lord. Filled with the Holy Spirit, he denounced somebody. So they're going to receive grace and power, brothers and sisters, for proclamation, performance of signs that will validate their proclamation. They're going to testify vocally. They're going to testify with signs and wonders to bear witness to the truths of Christ and the offer of the kingdom. And where are they going to do it? When are they going to do it? Rather, in chap- go back to chapter 1 in the book of Acts. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and that's when it took place on the day of Pentecost. What are they going to do? You will be my witnesses, right? A a witness is somebody who gives testimony for or against somebody, often in the law court when there's considerable concern for the truth of that testimony. And he says, you're going to testify about my person and work. You're going to attest to who I am and what I have done. And you're going to call people to repent. You're going to bear witness. You're going to give testimony to the people. You're going to do that to people who are receptive. You're going to do that to people who are antagonistic. But in order to do that, and here's the main point, in order to do that, you're going to need power. You're going to need power to do that in the face of false witnesses to those who give false testimony who oppose you and oppose Christ. And where are they going to do it? Go back to the verse, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth, right? They're going to begin (laughs) not where it's safe and comfortable. They're going to begin in Jerusalem. And you... Track the book of Acts, you see that the focus is on Jerusalem in the first seven chapters. The heart of Jewish life. And then in all Judea and Samaria, that's chapters 8 through 12. And Samaria is interesting, right? Because between Samaritans and Jews, you've got religious and you've got cultural tension. 
And Jesus says, you're going to be empowered to bear witness there. And then the remotest, the extreme part of the earth, right? Gentile territories through Asia Minor, and they're going to all the way, when we look all the way at Acts chapter 28, we find the Apostle Paul in Rome. There's something interesting, brothers and sisters, about what we see in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. We looked at those great commission passages, Matthew 28, John 20, Luke 24, where, where it is the focus is on people, groups, nations. Here, the focus is territories, territories. Ge- geography, right? Local and global, domestic and international. And you're going to need Holy Spirit power, divine power, heaven's power to make this mission possible. This is uh, no different, brothers and sisters, when God commissioned Israel. Israel was to witness to God. Isaiah 43, verse 10 makes that so. And so we become now the contemporary witnesses. Previously, brothers and sisters, Jesus was present with the disciples, right? And when he sends them out, Luke 9 and Luke 10, he sends them out, right? And they're able to go out, proclaim the kingdom, perform miracles. The mission was local. Because Christ was still with them. Now, Jesus was about to depart. The mission is no longer concentrated in one region. It's no longer, it's no longer local. And now with Jesus' departure, they're going to need power from on high to take it beyond their territory. And so I submit to you, brothers and sisters, we can know all the scriptures. We can go deeper in sound doctrine. We can know how Jesus evangelized. We can take all the training in the world and we can still lack what we need to be an effective witness to the Lord Jesus Christ unless you and I as believers apprehend the power that God supplies through the Holy Spirit to take the witness local and far. Because otherwise, you're depending on your own resources. According to the Joshua Project, this is a website that tracks unreached people groups. 42% of the world's population still remains unreached with the gospel. 42%. That's over 7,200 unreached people groups. And in the United States alone, there are still 97 unreached people groups, which is nearly 19% of the U.S. population. You think the mission is over? You think, you know, you think we still need power to reach those unreached people groups? So, we see Christ's preparation for effective witness. 
and also the promise of the Spirit for effective witness. Brothers and sisters, look at verse 9 in the book of Acts. Going back to chapter 1. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. It's like to say, what are you doing standing here when you've got commission orders to put into place. Wait for the advent of the Holy Spirit, power from on high, to be able to be witnesses beginning at Jerusalem and abroad. And for us, what are we waiting for? What are we waiting for, right? Are we we figuratively still looking up to the Christ who has already ascended? What are we waiting for? Yes, Christ is coming back. But until then, go. Go by the Spirit's power and blessing. Go by the Spirit's power and blessing because we've been prepared, brothers and sisters, And the Holy Spirit has supplied us the power. So go be the witnesses that Christ saved you and me to be. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for this word, Father. I pray that you would apply these truths to our hearts and may we seek not to do anything without the aid and enablement of the Holy Spirit who empowers us. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.